Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com After China abandoned zero COVID at the end of last year, the world expected the Chinese economy to roar back to life. Today, that roar sounds more like a whimper. China's economy is slowing. It's doing so badly that the government is hiding some vital statistics. And at the heart of that problem are Chinese consumers and their unwillingness to spend. I'm David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. And this week, I'm joined by Don Wineland, our China business and finance editor. We're asking, as consumer confidence in China plummets, can the Communist Party get people to start spending? This is Drum Tower from The Economist. Don, welcome to Drum Tower. Thanks for having me. So, Don, you're back in Shanghai, where you are bureau chief, as well as running our business coverage. But we did actually meet last week in Beijing. That was a treat for me, a rare treat, in fact. No, it was great seeing you. And it was great entering Beijing without worrying about being thrown into quarantine or something like that. Every time I move cities now, I I think about how difficult it was to get around last year. Your visit, though, delightful in every way, had one little dose of humiliation, for me at least, because... Don, you are significantly taller than me and indeed almost everyone else. And we went for a big government meeting. And at the end, this being a Chinese meeting, they took photographs. And when they sent them through, I looked like I was a school child on a school trip. Uh, And I was not the teacher. But anyway, it was lovely having you. And it was good for my sense of humility to be next to you. You know, I didn't even notice that in the pictures. That's because you're too far up to see. Yes, I was down (laughs) somewhere below. I do end up bumping my head quite frequently. That's got to be rough. Yes. So Alice is on a reporting trip this week, but I'm thrilled that you're here because we're talking about China's economy, which is your beat and is also in a spot of bother. That's right. You know, economies around the world right now are having difficulties, but China is really struggling right now. So Don, if you're Xi Jinping looking at China's economic dashboard, what are the most worrying lights that are flashing red? There are a lot of flashing lights right now. The property sector is essentially melting down. Big investment firms are struggling. Youth unemployment is at a generational high. China's factory towns are really hurting because exports to the rest of the world are slowing down. And of course, people just aren't spending. And let's break down why that all matters. Because, okay, point one, China is extremely large. Uh, That's not my most subtle point, but that is true. And that's why it's just incredibly important to the global economy. It also matters because all those warning lights that you just described, Don, they're actually kind of the opposite of the problems seen in America or Europe. If you're a Western leader like Joe Biden or someone in Europe, you're worried about, as you say, rising prices. Chinese leaders are worrying about prices dropping and people not spending. Why is that dangerous for an economy? 
Well, if you sell things, then you're going to see your income fall on the things that you sell. Of course, there's also worries about a deflationary spiral where the government can no longer control how much prices are going down for. And that, of course, is bad for anyone who is trying to make money and sell products. And presumably the other big danger is if everyone thinks that things are going to cost less next year, they're not going to buy them now. And so you get into this kind of self reinforcing cycle where people don't go and spending so it's going to cost less next year. Exactly. It's kind of the other side of inflation. So if inflation is very high, you know, people don't want to sell things because the money that they accept today is going to be worth less tomorrow and prices are going to be higher tomorrow. Of course, with deflation, why buy something now if you can get it cheaper tomorrow? And it's important to talk about people going and buying stuff because such a big part of this economic story is about regular Chinese people not wanting to go out and buy. And that had been a big hope, right? When the pandemic ended the end of last year, the beginning of this year, we expected this you know, revenge spending. People are going to rush out. They've been locked up for so long. They were going to go out and spend. And that didn't quite happen, did it? No, we really experience a lack of consumption, a lack of demand for products and services. And it's really a surprise because it goes against everything that we were expecting at the end of zero COVID. And before we dive into that, let's just talk about what we mean by consumption. We don't mean like a winsome poet with tuberculosis on a Swiss mountain. We mean demand, people going out and buying stuff, right? Because to really boil it down, there are some different ways to get a country's economy roaring. You can have the government building lots of roads and airports and train lines. And China's done a brilliant job at that for the last couple of decades. Or you can get shoppers going out and maxing out their credit cards, buying new cars, buying giant TVs, going on holiday. And that has been an unusually important part of, say, the American growth story. Is that a fair summary, Don? Yeah, I think that's what economists mean when they talk about government versus household spending. One of the quirks of the Chinese economy is that household spending is a much smaller piece of the pie when you compare it with places like Japan or America. Are there numbers for that? So household spending accounted for 38% of the Chinese economy in 2021. Compare that with 70% in the US. So consumers in America are generating a lot more economic growth in America than compared to China. That's a huge gap. So way more than half of the American economy is just regular Americans spending stuff. Exactly. And you can see this when you look at savings rates. So average Americans save somewhere between 6 to 8% of their income, whereas in China, it's usually above 30%. Right now, it's somewhere between 31 and 32%. But that's a huge difference. Wow. So almost a third of their paychecks going straight into the bank as savings. That's right. And this story about Chinese consumers being in a funk is something that you have been watching from Shanghai. And I was just watching from a city way to the south of there called Foshan, because I wanted to see what a slowing Chinese economy looks like on the ground. And so I went to this big boom town. I know you've been there, Don, full of entrepreneurs right near the border with Hong Kong, near the city of Guangzhou, a place called Foshan. Yeah, I rode my bike to Foshan in 2006. I didn't plan it very well. And I ended up cycling for several hours through this maze of factories and dirt roads. By the time I got back to Guangzhou, my face and my knuckles had turned black because there was so much pollution and just dust on the roads. It was quite a disastrous trip. I'm curious what it looks like today. Don, as a fellow China cyclist, I feel your pain. I can imagine giant red trucks passing you way too close as you kind of bump your way past factory gates. That sounds extremely scary. 
So Foshan is enormous. It's about 7 million people. It is very famous as China's furniture selling capital, these huge wholesale markets, particularly in its Shunde district. It's also famous because it is home to a giant, extremely troubled property company, Country Garden, Biguiyuan, which I know you've been looking at. But I wanted to meet people who can sense when the economy is slowing, when people are worried about property. And furniture selling is a pretty good proxy for the housing market, because if you don't buy an apartment, you don't need furniture to stick in it. So I went and visited a bunch of furniture malls. Oh, that's fascinating. So tell me what you experienced. It was a weirdly eerie visit to Foshan because hanging over everything is the real drama around their largest, most famous company, Country Garden. And in fact, I just by pure chance decided to stop by the headquarters of Country Garden. When I got there, there was this very strange scene, which is very obviously one of these small-scale protests that you and I see all the time. This poor, shirtless father with his daughter and wife kneeling on the roadside silently in protest looking for help. I assume someone had maybe bought an apartment, hadn't had it delivered yet, which is one of the things that has been triggering small protests near property developers all the time. But in a very Chinese security guard way, the security at Country Garden decided that it was embarrassing for people to see this. And so they had lined up with these giant golf umbrellas. And so there was a wall of golf umbrellas hiding this guy, police everywhere, people blowing whistles at me when I started to take photographs of him. And it was such a metaphor for an economy where there are now real signs of economic distress and pain. And the instinct of those in power is to hide things in kind of a clumsy way. Absolutely. And we've seen a lot of official statistics disappearing in the same way recently. So the Statistics Bureau stopped publishing their Consumer Confidence Index in April after the numbers fell to levels that hadn't been seen since the depths of the pandemic. And earlier this month, to everyone's surprise, the Statistics Bureau announced that it was halting the publication of youth unemployment numbers. So these are the figures that everyone's been watching very closely recently because they've been climbing to levels that really haven't been seen any time this generation. And you saw a lot of mockery, didn't you, online? Wasn't there that very good comment by some Chinese netizen about, you know, I watch TV and there was an ad that told me to stop smoking, so I'm going to stop watching TV? Yeah, But the one thing that you cannot hide is there is a collapse in demand and a collapse in confidence. Exactly. So where were you driving in Foshan when you came across that lonely protest? I was on my way to a giant furniture mall called the Louvre, like the museum in France. It is the size of many, many aircraft hangars. It's very grand inside in a slightly blingy way. But I have to say there were not a tremendous number of customers. And so I just kind of potted about and talked to some of the people selling. Okay, and who did you meet? One of the most interesting conversations I had was with a woman called Ms. Jo. So Don, I want you to imagine right in the middle of this giant furniture mall, you have this huge multi-story atrium. And on the ground level, there's a company selling this quite strange furniture for kind of cigar rooms and clubs. So Ms. Jo, she's in her 30s. She was manning a stand selling I guess it's kind of if Indiana Jones had a fever dream and decided to furnish a bar. So it was these armchairs and tables that were all designed to look a bit like a 1950s kind of Dakota propeller plane and tables that are actually kind of fake leather suitcases from the 1950s, but as kind of coffee tables. So anyway, she was selling this stuff. It's very expensive. If you want a desk that looks like a one half of a Dakota aircraft with a kind of riveted wing, 
It's about 30,000 yuan, so several thousand dollars. But she was telling me her sort of economic story of the pandemic. And she had this really interesting insight. So Ms. Zhou was saying that in the first two years of the pandemic, China's economy was not that seriously affected. And I think what she means by that, Don, is after that very first wave in Wuhan, you and I both saw China do this extraordinary thing, which was wrestle that wave to the ground by locking people indoors for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then you had that weird period from, the, I guess, the summer of the first pandemic year, 2020, where China turned itself into this giant bubble sealed off from the rest of the world. But inside that giant dome, life was remarkably normal and factories kind of worked pretty well. That's right. And I think her experience is representative of lots of people's experiences in China at that time. People were getting out and traveling almost as usual. So I remember in 2021, I was stuck in Hong Kong and, you know, it was very hard to leave Hong Kong or come back into Hong Kong. And I have lots of friends here in the mainland who were traveling around, living what looked to be kind of normal lives. It was very frustrating. It was. In fact, I can tell you it was a pretty good time to go on holiday inside China. I did that with one of my kids because there were no foreign tourists. It was nice and quiet. So even though those first two years were actually remarkably positive, that did change. And did Miss Joe tell you what happened to her business during the pandemic? So Don, she told me that her company had cases of customers who had made big orders for furniture just before the pandemic, but to be delivered a few months later. And then suddenly their business started getting hit by all of those lockdowns, by a general pandemic slowdown, and they started cancelling their house renovations or cancelling that expensive new furniture. Right. And, you know, I think people across the country experienced just that in 2022. So many businesses' plans were upended. People that had borrowed money from the bank in order to expand their companies really got caught in a tight place. And of course, people couldn't just move around, right? Because the lockdowns became stricter as soon as those more contagious Omicron variants reached China. Yeah. The fear of being locked up just by moving between cities was quite strong at that time. And obviously, that has a, a big impact on how much people are going to spend. And what I heard in Foshan from Ms. Zhou is that that lingering impact has actually really dampened things even after all the controls were lifted and things were supposed to go back to normal. She noticed that people are feeling economic pain. So you hear Ms. Joe there talking about how because of the pandemic over the last couple of years, a lot of people have had economic trouble. But I have to say, she was not the only person in Foshan who described this in really kind of granular detail. I met this really interesting man in this little delivery company. It's a domestic one. They ship furniture basically around China when people buy it in Foshan. He's just a couple of trucks. He's got about four people working for him. He gave me little cups of tea as he was telling me his story. And he described really clearly that in the first two months after China opened up, so I guess March, April of this year, there was this real moment of hope that people went crazy, in his words. There was this craze for kind of going out and shopping. But then they realized they didn't have enough money in their pocket and it was time to go back to work. And now he's really having to cut his delivery prices, even as his wage bill is pretty high. And so he's actually finding life pretty tough. Yeah. So what you're talking about there is what's referred to in Chinese as 报复性消费, 
or revenge spending. We certainly had a pop of that in the first couple months of the year. But as this delivery person explained to you, it really does seem like it is fizzled out and it is not holding up the way the government expected. And that is feeding straight through into people's confidence about the future. You know, the delivery guy told me about how he's had to slash prices on delivering furniture across China, and that just makes him nervous. And when people in China get nervous, they start to save. And that's exactly what Ms. Zhou described. So you hear her there saying that when people feel they have stable incomes, then they would spend, spend, spend. But as soon as the future looks uncertain, they get a lot more conservative. Yeah, the numbers are really worrying this year. So retail sales growth slowed in July when you compare it to the same time last year. It's barely in positive territory. And if you're looking at loans, the numbers for July really shocked a lot of analysts. They were less than half of what people were expecting. So these are all really worrying signals. And Don, we know the government is worried about this reluctance to spend. And we know that because the propaganda machine is pumping out images on the nightly TV news, in newspapers of crowded domestic tourist sites, packed restaurants full of happy diners, pushing that message that the economy is roaring. But on the ground, people know that isn't the reality. And this confidence crisis is a huge puzzle for the Communist Party. And in a moment, we're going to ask what the party could do to get Chinese consumers spending again and whether they'll pull those policy levers or not. And Ms. Zhou will tell us how the uncertainty is affecting her business and her own life decisions. But first, we wanted to remind listeners that you can read all of Don's great reporting about China's economy over on our website. But you will need to be a subscriber. If you are already, thank you. You make all of this reporting and podcasting possible. And if you're not, why not try our free 30-day digital subscription? You'll find more details at economist.com slash drum offer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. David, did Miss Joe, your furniture seller in Foshan, say how this uncertainty and confidence problem has been affecting her business? She did. Don, if you can imagine the scene, we're in this giant atrium, and from behind her 1950s you know, Indiana Jones airplane desk, she has this very precise view of Chinese consumer spending. And Ms. Joe starts telling me where the customers with money come from, right down to the levels of, sort of different tiers of cities. So she told me she still has customers who are keen to show off, spend the money on high-end furniture. Right, like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou. Right, but the squeeze is coming from her customers in second and particularly third tier cities. Those customers just aren't willing to spend. 
Yeah, it seems like Miss Joe really has a good eye for what's going on around the country. I mean, she's pointing out kind of where the property slump is not so serious at this point. These are the big cities. And then, of course, where we're really seeing some problems in the second and third tier cities where there's just not enough buyers, too many flats. And in some places, they're just not completing homes as well. So when Miss Joe talks about how customers from third tier cities are too scared to come to her fancy shop and buy a $3,000 armchair... She's actually putting her finger on a much, much larger problem, right? That all of those predictions that China was going to become the biggest economy in the world, this extraordinary economic global miracle, a lot of that was driven by how people thought there was going to be this enormous explosive growth in the urban middle class, driven by those cities of like five, six, seven million people. And if they're not spending, then that boom isn't happening. That's right. The smaller cities are where this problem is really becoming obvious because those are the places that are seeing the quickest decreases in price. Because their housing markets were super overheated, right? And now they're cooling pretty fast. Yes. Some of them saw the biggest boom and now they're seeing the biggest bust. Yeah. To be clear, the Chinese government has a record of proving its critics wrong and powering its way out of slumps. And so if Ms. Zhou is hoping that customers start walking back through her door with a kind of spring in their step, there are things that governments can do. They can hand out stimulus checks like you saw during the pandemic in America or in Europe. And yet the Communist Party isn't keen to do that. As you've seen official media saying, if you give anxious Chinese households just spare cash, they will put it straight in their savings accounts. They will not spend it. Yeah, we're not really seeing them take a lot of action right now. You know, they could reinflate the housing market. They haven't done that. And I think they're trying to escape this boom-bust cycle that they've been in for literally decades. I think that also explains some of the commentary we're seeing right now in state media. So there was a recent Study Times article, this is a state-owned paper, that argued that the government should do nothing and it should stick with the status quo. But doing nothing isn't currently bringing local Chinese customers back through the door of that fancy furniture mall. And the other part of China's economic miracle, that export boom, Ms. Zhou and her fellow salespeople in Foshan, they're not sure that that's going to save them either. Ms. Zhou told me this really interesting thing about how during the pandemic, actually foreign buyers really stocked up on a lot of things and filled up warehouses in America and in Europe with a lot of goods from China, partly because they were worried that there might be disruptions because of the pandemic. You might not get that container easily onto a ship. She's also actually noticing something really important, right, Don, that is a lot of foreign demand during the pandemic was because, you know, Americans were locked down at home. They were buying new exercise bike or Europeans were buying a new desk or a laptop. And that demand just isn't going to come back because it was a kind of one-off surge as people worked from home. Yep, that's right. There's just not nearly as many foreign buyers right now for these types of goods. But I'm curious, did you see many foreigners strolling around in Foshan? So Don, you know how one of the strangest things about living in China, both during the pandemic and frankly, even now that it's supposedly all gone, is there are just so few foreigners. It's really easy to be the only foreigner on a domestic flight or in an enormous provincial railway station. Here in Foshan, I did see a few foreigners, people from, say, India, Africa, Arab countries. And there was one little mall which specializes in selling things to Indian wholesalers. And actually, I had quite a funny conversation with a Chinese saleswoman about the kind of tastes 
that Indian buyers have and how those are different from Chinese tastes? So that's a little bit of a diss there from that saleswoman because when I asked her what kind of tables Indian buyers want, she goes, well, kind of the same styles that we liked in the 1990s. <laughs> and did you find that to be true? Well, what was pretty cool was that a, a few moments later, I ran into a buyer from India who assured me the exact opposite. No, no, it's different Products. because Indian customers mostly like, you know, modern, modern stuff, right. uh, not this Chinese style. Mm-hmm. Mostly they like to buy the modern one right, right. Yeah, or minimalistic, mm-hmm. but yeah, different. <laughs> so I guess he's more into Scandinavian modern than Foshan furniture. Yeah, I have to say this taste tussle, actually, that we were talking about small marble tops, tables with brass legs. But if you're Ms. Joe trying to sell furniture in Foshan, if those foreign buyers are not spending in a really kind of lavish way, that means more competition. She's worried that Chinese factories that were used to selling to foreigners, they're going to start looking for domestic customers alongside other domestically facing companies. And so there's just a sense of more and more competition. And that's already a worry for her because as a saleswoman on commission in her big fancy mall, she is already facing more and more competition from people who buy their furniture online. Mm -hmm. So there Ms. Joe is pointing out that even when there are customers willing to buy, there's now maybe five times as many different outlets and companies trying to sell to them. And she has this really kind of evocative phrase about, for the same cake, more people are trying to get their slice. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a very difficult industry to be in right now. David, do you have any sense of what keeps everything from a much bigger collapse? I think it's easy for outsiders to miss one big source of resilience in China, which is how much people save, as you mentioned at the beginning, Don, but also how much housing wealth some luckier people have. So if you're in Beijing and Shanghai, and maybe you bought your home from your state employer back in the 1990s, that was like a giant one-way elevator. You know, you might have bought that apartment in the 1990s for as much as an armchair costs in Ms. Joe's mall. And it's now worth hundreds of thousands of US dollars. And so that is a huge profit, even in a place like Foshan, not a very famous city down south. I met a woman selling hotel furniture, kind of cheap tables and chairs. And she was a migrant worker. She'd come from another province. She bought her apartment in Foshan 10 years ago. Since then, you check the prices, they basically doubled over the last decade. So if you got in at the right time, you do have a stock of housing wealth. A lot of people like this woman that you spoke with, you know, they've experienced amazing on paper wealth increases. But one of the problems now is that if people are worried about their housing price coming down slightly, there's this what's called a a negative wealth effect, the idea that your net worth is going to slightly decrease. So that is one of the things that's really adding to this sense of insecurity right now. People just don't feel as rich as they used to. And that affects all sorts of other big decisions that they need to take. We go back to Ms. Joe in her shopping mall in Foshan. She is really wary of making that big step onto the ladder and taking that gamble. Mm-hmm. 
So Ms. Zhou lays out so clearly there. She moved to Foshan on the coast of China from a pretty poor inland province, and she was considering buying an apartment last year. But now her income just isn't very stable. She's a saleswoman, she's on commission, and she's going to have to pay off a mortgage every month. And then she starts talking about how she worries about if you're spending all your money on your home. What if someone falls sick? What if you fall sick? What if someone in your family falls sick? Because in China, she spells it out. The health insurance, maybe it's okay for a relatively serious problem, but if you have a really massive critical disease, the insurance just isn't going to cover you. And that is such a Chinese way of describing your economic decisions that you have to make. Exactly. When I'm listening to her talk, I keep hearing her use the words uh, Danxin and Danyo, you know, just concern, worry. And a lot of this comes back to the fact that there is not much of a social safety net, especially for migrant workers that have come from, you know, smaller cities and moved to bigger ones. A lot of this connects back to Xi Jinping's outlook on welfareism. He said quite clearly he's against this type of ideology that the decadent West is into. So it doesn't look like handing out checks is in the future for a lot of these people. And, you know, it's very easy to understand the types of decisions people are making when they are worried about the future like this. A lot of these people remember much, much harder times, you know, the 1980s and even the 1990s. I think one of the things that's so striking is that there's also a generational effect I think that's fair. So Ms. Zhou, she is a Jiuling Ho. She's born in the 1990s. And she's basically only ever known a China that was rising serenely. But the last two, three years have been a real shock. So Ms. Zhou shared this real kind of expression of economic pain. She talked about, you know, I'm not ready to take a gamble with money because everything just feels so uncertain. The pandemic, I've just never experienced something like this in my life. In the past, experts had these kind of confident forecasts, but nowadays it's really hard to say what's going to happen and what might change next. I think Miss Joe's message is really emblematic of this crisis. So people of her age who were born in the 90s really should be willing to get out there and spend. They don't have the memory of China's toughest time. So if they can't get Miss Joe to get out and spend her money, I don't know who they'll be able to convince. That's right, Don. I really felt Ms. Joe summed up so much about what is happening right now, because if the government can't get her to feel more confident, and if they can't get customers to walk back through the door of her shop, then the economy is going to continue being really slow and sluggish. And one of the ironies is that in previous crises, the Communist Party has been able to build roads as far as the horizon to lay out high-speed train tracks at kind of breathtaking speed. But this problem, getting people to feel confident, that is hard for even the most powerful dictator because the one thing you can't do as a ruler is order people to feel more confident and go and spend. So Don, you're looking at the numbers every day. You're in Shanghai talking to bankers and financial people every day. Where do you see this going? Where's this confidence crisis headed? They got rid of one of the biggest problems that was weighing down confidence late last year, and that was zero COVID. So they've taken care of that part of this crisis. I think they need to deal with the housing crisis before people are filled with confidence 
and the will to spend again. And of course, Don, you and I are watching what's happening in China, but this slowdown actually has impacts that we felt all across the globe, right? Yes, of course. So I think there's good news and bad news for the world economy. You know, if you're building a new school in America or you're renovating your home, then things like steel beams may cost you less because China's not hoovering up all of these commodities like they were not too long ago. But of course, you know, if you work for a company that needs Chinese demand, companies like Airbus and Apple and, you know, hotel chains, they are really going to see an impact from this because, you know, people aren't buying iPhones. Chinese tourists aren't getting out there and spending as much money as they were in the past. And those types of companies are really going to notice that China's in a funk. And what's amazing about places like Foshan and talking to people like Ms. Zhou is you really feel that you are in a hub of globalization. I mean, you've been to these cities, Don. Every street is just lined with these kind of enormous malls selling to China and to the world, trucks heading to ports with kind of stacks of containers heading out to the ocean. You feel that you are in a giant global economic machine. But right now, it's really slowing down. Don, thank you so much for joining me on Drum Tower. It's been great to have you and we'll have you again soon. My pleasure, David. And thank you to everyone listening who has been letting us know where you are in the world as you listen to Drum Tower. So a hello to Uta, who listens from her home on the Bavarian-Austrian border. A hi to John in his quiet garden in Washington State. We loved an email from Simon, who listens while he walks his dog around Mont Pelerin in Switzerland. He told us that our episode about food security, the one we called Against the Grain, was close to his heart because he wrote a university dissertation called Against the Grain, the Dynamics of Reform in China's Grain Commerce from 1978 to 1994. So great minds think alike, Simon, and we won't test you with a quick viva on that. If you want to get in touch with us, please email us at drum at economist.com. We love reading your messages. We love knowing where you are when you listen to us. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barclay Brown produced this episode. Sound design is by Ting Lee Lim and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.